HIV is a race-specific bioweapon. There has been global cooling for the last eight or nine years. And when you add up all those dates in the Bible and the six days of creation, you only get thousands of years. There's nothing in observational science that contradicts that. What? The human in me is like, you know, phew, we, we don't have to worry about a supernova going off and wiping out all life. The physicist in me, you know, just a little bit says, you know, we'd get some really good data if one went off right near us. Hello heathens and welcome to the Science of Sarcasm episode 6, a podcast about bad science and pop culture, politics and the media. I'm your host Shane and joining me on the show tonight is John the Gentleman Physicist straight from the hallowed halls of YouTube. Hello John. Hello, thanks for having me on. No problem. Now usually, like I said, this show covers the topic of pseudoscience in pop culture and the media, but you had a proposition that you wanted to discuss tonight. So, first of all, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, and the proposition that you would like us to cover? So, I do the YouTube channel, The Gentleman Physicist. I have a master's degree in theoretical physics, and I made it about halfway through a PhD in it. Um, I study early universe cosmology and uh, dark matter, all fun stuff like that. Um... And I guess my proposition is that physics is better than sex. Uh, it, it's ba- it's more sort of a comment on the the quote that is often attributed to Richard Feynman, though he probably never actually said it, which was when someone asked him, you know, what's the point of doing physics? Why, why bother spending your life on it? He supposedly answered, um, well, physics, it, it's like sex. Yes, it has its practical purposes and practical uses, but that's not why we do it. So, no, I'm not saying physics is actually better than sex, but I wanted to talk about some of the the things that physicists came up with because, you know, they were really interested in learning more about physics, but that then turned out to revolutionize our way of life, if that makes sense. Okay, well, we will get to that shortly, but first, as always with this show, we are going to cover the news and nonsense of the week. Now, would you like the good news or the utter nonsense first? Uh, I'm an optimist. Good news first. Okay, this story comes from ScienceDaily.com. Its source is the Gemini Observatory. And the story is... First potentially habitable Earth-sized planet confirmed by Gemini and Keck observatories. Now it seems that using Kepler data, since verified by large ground-based telescopes, scientists have discovered a roughly Earth-sized rocky planet within a zone around its own star that would support liquid water. It's about 500 light-years away, so I don't think we'll be getting there anytime soon, unfortunately. Did you say five light years away? Five hundred. Ah, because yeah. <laughs> five light years away would be <laughs> would be one of the closest stars to us. It's I think the closest one is is just about three light years away. Uh, well, this one so, is located in the Cygnus constellation, I think. My stellar geography is not particularly good, but I'm always impressed by these these studies. Like it, detecting Jupiter-sized planets is one thing because. Well, you know, you just have a star that actually wobbles a fair bit when you've got a Jupiter orbiting around it. But something as small as Earth, 
I'm always amazed that they're able to find those, especially on something as far away as 500 light years. And th so. this isn't the only planet they actually found around this system. This is the outermost planet they've located so far. Um, now, the sun it's going around is smaller than ours, and this planet is located the same distance from it as Mercury is from our sun. Okay, but because, but because it's, it's less bright? Yes. And there are actually four more planets between it and its sun. So it uh, do they do they say how big the planets are? Like, is it no? But I can't supermassive ones. I can't imagine it. Um, they mostly focused on. Just hold on one second. We can edit this bit out later. I think they mostly. F I don't imagine like a Jupiter-sized planet lasting. I suppose there are a lot of hot Jupiters being discovered recently, though. Yeah, there are a lot of Jupiters that are found really close to their stars. Unfortunately, the story doesn't go into the relative sizes of the other four planets. But one thing I always notice with these stories, they always put up an artist's impression, and I think that's really taking liberties. Because we know there's a planet there, and... We kind of sort of know what very wide range its mass is in. But then when you start colouring it in, it makes me wonder whether or not you're taking liberties. I have heard that people can get readings on what the atmospheres are potentially made of. Not through the spectrometry? Uh, some, something like that. Uh, so they might have a rough idea of what colour it should be, but... You're right. I mean, it's it's probably it's they've probably taken quite a few artistic liberties with it. Um, the story reminds me of a piece of art that a friend of mine did a while back. He's uh, an astron astronomer by the name of Alex Parker, and he does really good science visualization stuff. And one he he put a he made a constellation uh, not a constellation. Uh, he put all the planets discovered at the time of this art piece in orbit around a single star, so you could see how big they were and how far their orbits were and it's it's quite a quite a beautiful uh short video well i will get that off of you later and i'll make sure to include it in the show notes it's 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 an interesting way of seeing the, uh, getting a sense of scale for for these extrasolar planets cuz their their orbits vary quite quite wildly i know i've i have seen the ones the artwork comparing the different types of stars. And it kind of puts things a lot, very much in perspective. Like, you see the Earth compared to the Sun, and it's like, holy crap, the Sun is big. And then you see the Sun compared to Betelgeuse. To things like... And you're yeah, like, Beetle holy crap, what is that thing? <laughs> yeah, th those stars don't last very long. <laughs> it's really, the scale of space is something that I don't think anyone can actually picture in their heads. They they can sh do it with math. You can't visualize yourself standing next to Jupiter and keep it to any kind of realistic scale. Uh, XKCD did a really good uh, comic on this, which was, or a, a what if or something like that, where they were talking about, you know, if if a beach was made up of grains of sand, like it, so where our sun is the size of a single grain of sand, what would it look like? And, you know, you have most of the beach is made of these tiny, tiny grains of sand, but then you have boulders on there of these giant 
stars. So it's it's more like a beach with a bunch of gravel mixed in. It's it's quite a funny mental image. It's also the space between them. It's really hard to picture. I remember at the start of the re- the Star Trek reboot, where the premise was that Romulus was about to be wiped out by a supernova, which was threatening the galaxy, and I was couldn't help but think that the person who wrote that really has no idea how much space there is in space. Yeah, that's, that's that doesn't sound quite right. I I always tend to ignore the the science in Star Trek. Um, that said, though, if I think even I think a supernova going off anywhere in our stellar neighborhood would probably toast us. Like if a if a supernova went off in one of the neighboring star systems, like uh, Proxima Centauri, I think it would pretty much wipe out all life on Earth. The, the reason we were able to evolve without life being wiped out is just because supernovas are relatively rare. Like, of the billion stars in the galaxy, I'm pretty sure the expected number of supernovas you get a century is about one. So the chances of a supernova setting off anywhere near us, like even remotely near us, is very, very low. Which is a good thing. Contrary to what all the 2012 theorists thought. Yeah, I, 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 well, so I'm not an astronomer, I, I was a cosmologist, but the impression I get is that if there were a star about to go supernova nearby, we probably would have seen it, like, it, or, or seen the star and seen that it was at risk of going supernova, but I just don't think there is one. Yeah, especially in the Star Trek universe. Some, someone dropped the ball there. So here comes I mean, the... Oh, sorry, go on ahead. Oh, okay, well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, the the human in me is like, you know, phew, we, we don't have to worry about a supernova going off and wiping out all life. The physicist in me, if the physicist in me, you know, just a little bit says, you know, we'd get some really good data if one <laughs> went off right near us. Yeah, you'd get a little bit of satisfaction before you started to boil inside. Yeah. <laughs> So, here is the nonsense for this week. This is from NPR. Why physicists are in a film promoting an Earth-centered universe. Apparently, some geocentrist, who is, I think, just a slight fraction above being a flat earther, has been quote-mining people from stock footage, including several prominent physicists, and paid the actress Kate Mulgrew, who some of our listeners may remember as Captain Janeway from Star Trek, to provide snippets of narration, and turned it into a film saying that the Earth is at the centre of the universe, and displaying a worldview that predates that of Aristarchus. <laughs> well, I mean... Let's let's be fair. Copernicus. Okay, most people didn't pick up on Aristarchus. The sun-centered universe is fairly recently adopted, but it's honestly a film like that. I feel so few people believe it. Like it, it's such a fringe belief. Like even amongst young Earth creationists, it's a fringe belief that the Earth is the center of the the solar system. I I well, it it comes off more as entertaining to me than as an actual threat to scientific literacy in our society. It's such a fringe belief that I, I can't imagine more than a fraction of a percent of people take it seriously. One thing that always gets me is, how is it that someone's thinking can be so sloppy? 
in one aspect. And yet this person has somehow earned enough money to actually bankroll a documentary from their personal funds. It's amazing the way the mind works. I mean, I, I was just watching some uh, some videos on the inflating earth, in quotes, theory, by the, uh, there, there's some famous comic book artist who strongly backs the fact that the earth, the tectonic plates, no, that's all BS. It's, the earth is actually expanding, and that's why it looks like all the continents fit together, is because if you shrink things down, they would all fit together and there'd be no oceans. But because let's just call it magic, the Earth is expanding out. And, I mean, this guy, he, he has very slick animations backing him up. He's got probably quite a bit of money to his name. But he has this crazy, crazy belief that, you know, he believes every geologist in the world is wrong. It's Well, not just every geologist, every scientist ever, anywhere. Because where is this matter coming from? That's causing the Earth oh, to he, inflate. Magic particles shooting out of the sun called prime matter or something. Uh, he has some hand-wavy thing that is completely consistent to him, but that's... Completely ignores all observational data to everyone else? Yeah, pretty much. There's so many experiments we can do that try, uh, trying to defend that point is, in, in my opinion, it's harder to defend than young Earth creationism. Like... I mean, what was that that debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye? Ken Ham kept saying, well, you know, that's historical science versus observational science. And the fact that the Earth goes around the sun, that's <laughs> that's firmly in the observational science. That's, uh, that's not even something you rely on historical science for. So Plus, there are other... I know you can come up with, uh, say, a, a simulation where you put Earth in the middle and you just play everything around, but it's so much more complicated and you have to infer all these additional forces to explain yeah, why you... that big sun isn't in the middle and why it's going around a little tiny planet instead of the other way around. But it's more than that, and it's that for like the, the first, I think it was Galileo that noticed this, or that explained this using orbiting around the sun, is that if you look at Mars's orbit, well, if it's orbiting Earth, then it's got one weird, weird orbit where it sort of goes one way, then changes direction, goes backwards for a bit, and then keeps going. And this is just a visual trick, because Earth is closer to the Sun, and the Earth is going around the Sun. It causes Mars's apparent position to change. and to... Yeah, We're basically lapping it. We're basically what? Lap it. We're, like, if you imagine us on a racetrack, we're on the inside lane, and we're out pacing yeah. it and lapping it. Yeah, and you can you can explain this with with us an Earth-centered theory theory, but you have to add these things called epicycles, which is so Mars is orbiting the Earth, but for some reason Mars is going in a tiny little circle around its orbit around the Earth, and if you it's like in one of those you can, you can sorry, it's like in one of those fairground teacup rides. Yeah, exactly. But then, in order to fix even more precise data, well, now. Mars is also doing an epicycle inside its epicycle. And the reason we physicists drop this type of theory as opposed to the earth center the the, the sun-centered theory is simply because of predictive power. So with the sun-centered theory, each planet's orbit around the sun is described by two or three numbers, like the the eccentricity, the mass of the planet, 
uh, or the, sorry, the eccentricity, the mass of the sun, and the distance the planet is orbiting from the sun. And, and those three numbers, I'm pretty sure those are the only three you need, uh, describe that orbit basically from now until much farther in the future, when corrections from the other planets and general relativity throw it off. Whereas for the epicycle one, for each planet, you need to go and measure each one of these terms in the epicycle. So not only do you need the radius that the big circle, like the, the big circle is and its eccentricity, well then you have to go down to this smaller circle and do all these corrections. So whereas, whereas in one process needs three numbers, the other one needs a lot more, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the existing model has certain other predictive qualities, like, I, what is the term? Is it Lagrange points? Uh, yeah, Lagrange points. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, that, where the that's... gravity, they kind of cancel each other out, and you get this little dip where a, anything, it kind of, it's like a little hollow, gravity-wise, where lots of stuff fall in and they just get snagged. So it's, yeah, the Lagrange points are a really cool effect of... So it, it, that's that's a, a cool effect of basically Newton's laws of gravitation. So the 1 over r-squared force of gravity, so the, dis, uh, the force of gravity falls off as 1 divided by the distance squared as you go out. Uh, that has this consequent of Lagrange points. I mean, the the Earth-centered solar system, yes, that's that's a necessary part, but the Lagrange points are quite neat that when you've got two massive bodies orbiting each other, so in the solar system, for example, the Sun and Jupiter, then there's five spots where you get these sort of sometimes sa stable, sometimes unstable orbits that don't move relative to the, like, that don't move relative to the two massive bodies. And you can do a lot of really cool astronomy with them. For example, you can put... There, there's one in the Earth-Sun system. There's a Lagrange point on the far side of the Earth from the Sun. So if you put a satellite out there that looks out, it's always shielded from the Sun's radiation. Uh, or say you want to protect a satellite from the radio waves that the Earth's producing. Like, you've got a telescope that you want to study the galaxy but you don't want it to be affected by uh, i don't know the television broadcasts that are being pumped out into space well you can put it in the lagrange point between uh, on the far side of the moon so that it oh the satellite you've put out there always has the moon between itself and the earth so it's a really neat tool for astronomers that they use now they use a lot today i know jupiter has quite large ones in terms they've actually sucked up quite a lot of asteroids yeah if if you look at uh a, the same guy who did that animation of all the planets orbiting a single sun he also did one of all the known asteroids in our solar system and you'll look at this sort of flyby of the solar system with all these asteroids in it and you'll notice two big so you see the sun and you notice these two massive clumps of of just space junk and first you might think okay there's a planet at the center of those two big chunks and it's not it's there's actually a planet it those two chunks make an equilateral triangle with the planet with the Sun at the center so it just it's it's very noticeable if you just look at sort of a, a picture of all the all the space debris and asteroids we've seen in our solar system there's this huge 
these huge clouds of asteroids right where the Lagrange points for Jupiter would be, or two of the Lagrange points for Jupiter would be. I can send you a link for that one too. <laughs> okay, I'll make sure to include it in the show notes. Uh, well, now would you like to go on to the audience questions, or would you prefer to next do your physics is better than sex section? <laughs> I I can do the physics is better than sex section if you. And now is as good a time as any, I guess. So I I have I decided to bring two examples. The people did the science for it because it was awesome science, not because it would be something useful. In fact, if you'd asked them at the time, what's the use of this, they probably would have said, well, nothing. It's just a cool effect. So the first one, and sort of my one of my favorite theories in, in physics, is just the theory of general relativity, which is what Einstein came out with almost 100 years ago now. So in, I think about 1916 was the first paper published on it or something. And, you know, when it came out, the only thing it was good for was saying, okay, well, look, uh, Mercury's orbit's a little wonky. This explains it. And, you know, if Sun gets bent, if light gets bent as it passes the sun, this is how much it bends by. And that's, and no one really expected there to be anything more useful about it. Like, it was just, okay, we want to understand how objects in the heavens move. We want to, and in order to do that, we had to come up with this theory. And it's a beautiful theory that comes up with things like, if you're closer to the center of a gravitational potential, so if I'm on the bottom story of my apartment building versus the top story, time will be moving more slowly for me uh which is bizarre it's sort of like if if i'm standing at the top of mount everest i'm aging faster than someone standing want someone diving down to the bottom of the marianas trench and the thing is it's a really cool thing but it's such a small effect it would never affect your day-to-day -day life especially not in the 1920s but then along came satellites and along came atomic clocks and now we use something called the global positioning system. So every every cell phone you have, every emergency vehicle, every time you use Google Maps to get directions to the nearest taco stand, it's, uh, it uses these effects in order to be able to accurately predict your location on Earth. Because even though it's... even though the time differences because of being at way up in an orbit, because the satellites are way up in an orbit, is only something like nanoseconds, Nanoseconds are very important when it comes to the very precise measurements you need to do to make a GPS system work. So, does that actually make sense as a explanation of GPS? Or yes, cool. So, I mean, that's that's sort of a one of the go-to examples that a lot of people use in in physics to sort of justify why why what they're doing is interesting. But one of my favorite stories of this was actually a very different branch of physics which was uh, the discovery that helium-3 becomes a superfluid at very low temperatures so in in order to study th these things the the physicists who were working on it and I have their name Robert Richardson and he actually got a Nobel Prize in physics for this discovery he did he noticed something, he used a tool called nuclear magnetic resonance, which is this effect that if you put nuclei in a strong magnetic field, and then you bombard them with RF radiation, 
they will resonate at very particular frequencies. And what people first used this for was, okay, we need to know the temperature of an ultra-cold system, and we can use this to help find that. And when he was asked, so I tried to look for a source on this, but wasn't able to find it, but when he was asked, you know, someone asked him, what's the, what, what good is this NMR stuff for? Why are you spending so much time working on, on this technology that does it, like, does it have something useful for Joe Sixpack? Like, is it, is it useful for real life? And, you know, he sort of looked at, it, well, you know, other than measuring the temperature of ultra-cold atoms, I, I can't think of anything useful for this. But it's really good at helping me measure the temperature of ultra-cold atoms. <laughs> and, and so, you know, fine. It's So it's used to measure ultra-cold cold atoms. Okay. But the thing is, that was in the 60s. Today, every single MRI uses that technology to work. Every uh, Most chemistry labs will have a nuclear magnetic resonance system because it lets you... See, it, it lets you analyze what nuclei, what atoms are in, are in a chemical. It, it lets you make a three-dimensional model of a human body because it tells you what atoms are where. So it's it's an extremely useful technology. So you know, back to that original quote: Does yeah, physics is like sex. It yeah, it has its practical uses, but that's not why people did it. If you'd given someone the task of, in 1950, of saying, develop me something that can image the inside of a human body without using radiation like uh, an x-ray, they wouldn't have had a place to start. You needed to do this fundamental research whose main motivation was, holy shit, this is cool, to get that technology that we would eventually, uh, to get the, the building blocks for the technology we would eventually use to make things like MRIs. So that's 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 where I come from with my point on, you know, physics is better than sex. We 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 did it for fun, but it did come up with something useful. I know when a scientist is suggesting a paper or a piece of research to a funding body, they don't tend to write in because it's awesome, but it's usually implied. Kind of covered this subject and it was doing the difference between science advocates and actual scientists. And it showed an interviewer interviewing one of each. Uh, I have it up here now. Uh, why is it important that we have trapped antimatter? And the science, science advocate goes, Oh, it has applications in propulsion and energy creation, data transmission. And it goes to the scientist, Why is it important that we... Because it's fucking awesome! <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. I've actually been to talks where... I've been to talks on antimatter trapping where the person puts that comic up on there as their first slide. Like, they, I've been to some colloquiums where they'll be talking about the mechanisms they're using to tramp antimatter, and they love that comic. It, it is the first slide of their talk. <laughs> but it is awesome, because you've got this thing that it's... Antimatter is just there, and it's being held by these gigantic magnets that are using up so much energy, and... If it goes, it'll just annihilate whatever it touches and convert into pure radiation. And that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, It it's one of the cooler experiments, I think, these days. Just because it's... It, it captures so much of our imagination about, about physics. Because it, antimatter just sounds like such a cool... Cool substance. That ju it's sort of... It's really neat to... The idea that we're storing Wait, it. Wait, weren't you talking about you went on the league of nerds to review 
a Dan Brown book or movie, which involved the, the movie yeah, Angels and Demons. That involved a really bad storyline that involved antimatter, didn't it? That devol- involved a bad storyline and a worse understanding of science. It was. <laughs> It, it, there was plenty of material in there to to make fun of for a full hour long podcast. It was uh, it's because the person who was uh, Dan Brown when he wrote Ancient Demons didn't understand the difference between antimatter, the study for the of the Higgs boson, and for some reason the Higgs boson was trying to steal creation away from the church because it's the God particle. It it was a it, it was a mess, and if I get started on it, I'll just rant for. For hours, so. Yeah, one thing I really don't like about Dan Brown is that he will use an organization that exists in the real world, put a character in it that doesn't actually do real science, and thereby gives the pseudoscience that he is using in his books an air of credibility. Like, in. There was one. Oh, it was another one, it was the same character. Wasn't angels or demons? Oh, the lost There's symbol. The Da Vinci Code it was. I the think what? it was called the lost symbol. It was one about the Masons. But he had uh, one of the characters, a female scientist who was working in the Smithsonian, but she was doing noetic science, which is kind of like the secret, or Deepak Chopra, where what you you think at something and you can call it as tangible. Of, guidable effects on a process. Okay, I did I did not know that uh, Dan Brown had uh, had put a vid- put a made a book about noetics, but like I, I know that he usually sticks to butchering uh Catholic history and physics, but it doesn't surprise me that he would he would make a a book with that as the plot device. No, I think he's an equal opportunity hack. That that sounds like a good uh, a good review of most of his stuff. <laughs> Now, we were talking about some of the things that just come out of the scientific process almost accidentally. I remember one of these was the bending of space-time, and relativity actually came up with a couple of them as Einstein was walking through it. Like, E equals mc squared is an equation that, while not complete, is one that most people know, and it's something that really just fell out of relativity. He wasn't going to look for the interchangeable of energy and matter. It's just something that appeared in the equations as he was going through them. Yeah, it, it's something that sort of has to be there uh, if you want to make special relativity work right. It's uh, and it's one of those things that that's heavily uh, that's that's sort of very very strongly supported by evidence because all of quantum field theory, for example, the the creation of particles, like when they create the Higgs boson, they rely very heavily on turning the kinetic energy of these particles they're smashing into each other into the mass of these heavier particles. Uh, for example, the, the heaviest fundamental particle we have is the top quark. And in order to make that, you really have to smack two particles in together at a very high energy. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things that, well, it came out of theory it is as concrete in the physical world as newton's three laws now you've said that your main focus was on early universe cosmology 
and as I'm sure you're aware, there has been quite a lot of talk about that particular field recently with certain observations that have come in from Antarctica regarding observations made of the cosmic microwave background. And I don't know anywhere near enough about it, so I'm just going to throw it over to you and hopefully you might be able to shed some light on what it means when we talk about gravitational waves out in the cosmos. Okay, so that's a, it, it, that's a complicated mess of a question, but it's, uh, it, it's... What I focused mostly on was something called the Big Bang Nucleosynthesis, which is sort of in between the two effects that, that led to the, the CMB signature. So the, the cosmic microwave background, just a, a quick explanation of it, is when the universe was really, really young, it was very, very hot. And all the hydrogen, like all the hydrogen, which would later be just neutral hydrogen in the universe and then eventually fell and became stars. When you got early, far enough back, the hydrogen was so hot that the electrons and the protons were free. So it, it's, imagine if you stuck a bottle of hydrogen gas on, in a stove and you heated it up and up and up and up. Eventually it would get hot enough that the protons and electrons wouldn't stick together and you'd form a plasma. And the problem with plasmas is they're not transparent. So eventually, as the universe cooled, the plasma turned into just... Uh, the, the hydrogen became neutral, so the protons and the electrons combined, and suddenly the universe became transparent. So when people say they're looking at the CMB, they're looking at... they're looking farther and farther back in time until they can just see that surface where the universe became transparent. And that's the that's the CMB, the, the cosmic microwave background. We measure that temperature and it gives us a lot of information about the universe. Now, it's remarkably uniform. Something like, I think, to one part in 10,000. It's uniform. But then if you look at its fluctuations, so you, you find the very small fluctuations in that. Um, sorry, I'm hesitating here. You'll probably want to edit the, that bit out. Uh, it, but it okay. So if you measure the cosmic microwave background precisely enough, you can see very tiny fluctuations, and we notice that these fluctuations are uniform over the entire sky. So in order to try explaining this, we came up with a theory called inflation. And basically, what inflation was was for a split second, really, really early in the universe, the universe was expanding exponentially quickly which meant that the universe was actually expanding faster than light could travel across it. Which is a really weird concept, because, you know, most people know you can't travel faster than the speed of light. But for a brief period in, uh, in the early universe, we believed that the universe was expanding faster than it. Nothing was moving relative to itself, but it was still expanding faster than the speed of light, which is a, a weird concept. And until very recently, that wasn't that hadn't made any predictions so we had said we had said a bunch of stuff about this we had said okay well look it explains all these things we've observed about the early universe it it explains why the fluctuations are so uniform over the over the microwave background it explains uh why we don't see any really exotic particles because or really exotic sort of features sort of like m tiny black holes because if they had existed when the universe formed, well, this rapid phase of inflation would have just made them go away. Uh, 
And those are all really good explanations. But in order for a scientific theory to really be robust, it has to make a prediction. And one of the things that it predicted was that the CMB would be distorted by gravitational waves. Um, in a very, very particular way, which is something called, which is what this measurement found. I'm, I'm trying to think of whether I should even get into what polarization is. It's no, sorry, just a quick clarification from my my own ignorance. Are we talking about? See, it's always hard for me to try and picture space time because I try to either picture it as parallel lines or else as some kind of like three-dimensional froth almost. And when you're talking about the expansion, are we talking about the actual the creation of space going at a speed where the stuff in it can't actually keep up with the space that's unfolding around it? No, no, okay. So, the... Uh, a way you can picture it is... Okay, so, if I t use the naive sort of rubber sheet example where I've got two marbles on a sheet and I stretch it, when I stretch it, those marbles are going to feel an acceleration. But I believe during inflation, when the universe is expanding exponentially quickly, I can sort of be sitting on... So there's no stars there. But say inflation were happening and I'm sitting in space and you're sitting, you know, you're floating 10 feet away from me in space-time. And it starts expanding. I notice that you suddenly are very distant and eventually you just disappear because you've moved farther away than the light that's coming from you was able to, to travel to me. So I've seen you disappear. The thing is, if you ask me, did I feel like I was accelerating, I would say no. And if I, and if someone asked you, did you feel like you were accelerating, you would also say no. So it's literally, the distances have just sort of increased massively without actually feeling like, an, without feeling an acceleration. If that, if that makes a bit more sense, because it's, it's, it's sort of like everyone's been pulled apart, uh, but no one's actually felt like they've moved. Just because the 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 actual space has been stretched out. One of the analogies people will use is the uh, well, just for space time expanding in general is if you put raisins in a loaf of bread and you leave it to, leave the dough to uh, to rise, the raisins will all feel like they're moving away from each other, but they won't have moved in their own space. Okay, and is this in any way connected to the current expansion that we're seeing with what's is it termed dark energy? It may or may not be. So the important thing to know about dark energy is we understand very, very, very little about it. Is it really just a placeholder at this point? Almost. Dark matter, for example, we understand, or we think we understand relatively well. We we haven't been able to observe it yet, but we can measure how much matter appears to be in a solar in a in a galaxy. We can look at dark matter lenses. We can look at all these kind of things. We can we can say stuff about it that's more than just an educated guess. Dark energy is something we observe that the universe is expanding faster than it should be. We observe that that expansion is speeding up on the largest scales. And that's about it, to be honest. There, There's there's not much more you can say about it. So taking it back to the what these guys measured on the in the CMB, they looked at how, how light was polarized. Um, polarization is sort of, if you imagine light as a a wave propagating along an ocean. Well, in space, you, that can propagate at sort of any angle. So the waves can go up and down, or the waves can go side to side, or at an angle. And if you look at the angle that light from the CMB is coming at, in at, that is a that would look 
quantitatively different and qualitatively different if it's coming from a gravitational wave than if it's coming from just a normal fluctuation in the temperature of the early universe. So th that was a, a pretty hard prediction. Like the, If the universe formed because of inflation, then you would get these gravitational waves, whereas if it didn't form from inflation, you probably wouldn't. So th that's what this measurement means. And the more we understand about inflation, then maybe we can say, well, yes, inflation is tied to dark energy, or maybe we'll find out that no, they're not tied together at all. It's uh, dark energy, there's just so little known about it that it's very hard to actually say, yes, this means this. Because I, I think it's only been suggested, I think it's only about 15 years old. Like, uh, the, I think the first observations were made in 1997 or something. Yes, because I think I can still remember the point when the popular view was uh, Big Bang, Big Crunch cycle. Yeah, it was. There were there were always a couple of cases, which was you know you could have the Big Bang, Big Crunch, or you could have you could still have the universe expanding forever, and it wouldn't need dark energy for that. You you could have an open universe. The problem with dark energy is not only is it the universe looks like it's going to be expanding forever, but it looks like that expansion is going to speed up. Like that's that's the qualitative difference. It's like if if we just looked out really far away and saw that the farthest galaxies are still moving away from us, that'd be fine. Would be like okay. Well, I guess it means the universe is all going to freeze to death one day, but fine, fine, fine. The problem is that when we look out at these larger scales, not only is it still expanding away from us, but it's expanding away faster than it should be, which is, which is slightly different. It's uh, it's just a small difference, though. So, yeah, and, and, and you're right. It is uh, like, you know, when I was first learning about this stuff in high school, when I was reading like those popular science books, they didn't mention anything about dark energy because they... It hadn't been, this problem hadn't been seen yet, so. And given this uh, continued expansion, I think, is there going to be a point where we look out and see nothing? I mean, outside of the Milky Way. Where we could just say billions of years in the future, if there is anything still in the Milky Way to, that can build a telescope to look out beyond the Milky Way, will there be any galaxies left for it to look at? So that, that relies on a couple of things. One, it relies on our understanding of dark energy being right and it continuing to expand. So most physicists seem to say, as, as far as we know, these things keep expanding out. There's nothing we see that's going to stop it. So eventually the galaxy, the Milky Way, will be a galaxy onto itself. But there will still be some other galaxies that will be in, in our neighborhood. For example, Andromeda is eventually going to smack right into us. There are sort of these globular clusters, I believe that's the name for them, that sort of orbit the Milky Way. And, and they're, you know, just like the solar system, the sun has planets around it, well, the galaxy has small things orbiting it. And those would probably stick around for a lot longer, <laughs> because the, the force of gravity between, for example, the Milky Way and Andromeda is huge. It's just, uh, yeah, but the distant galaxies, eventually they would maybe disappear forever. I have to say, if there's anything alive in those globular clusters, I really envy their astronomers. Because they have such a good view of the Milky Way. Well, yeah, but but we can probably see some other stuff in the Milky Way better. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not, a, I'm not an astronomer. I, I, I shouldn't weigh in on that. <laughs> uh, one more time. I know I, I always end up going off on tangents in this show. Because when I have someone on... Who has the answers? It's, it's like it's like a night of googling. When I have someone who actually <laughs> understands these things, you mentioned dark matter, and one thing that myself and I hope some of my listeners would also want to know is 
is dark matter made up of some previously unknown form of matter or is it simply matter that is dark in that it is not radiating anything that we can actually see with our okay. current technology you wouldn't consider a neutrino matter like a, a a neutrino is something that it, it's given for example when a neutron decays to a proton it gives off an electron and a neutrino uh, a lot of the sun's energy is carried away in in neutrinos and they just don't interact with with things for example and a neutrino can pass through about a light year of lead without interacting with with the lead like if i had if i stacked lead for a, a solid light year and, and the thing is you don't really consider a neutrino matter even though it has a mass i don't think people really consider it matter um because it effectively behaves like radiation and dark matter it's we believe it's similar to neutrinos in that even though it's probably quite massive okay so Particle phenomenologists, so P the the particle physicists who sort of try matching models to models of particles to reality and compare them with experiments and stuff. Most of them expect dark matter to be a particle with a mass roughly on the scale of the mass of a proton. So that's that's sort of you'll you'll whenever you go to a talk on this, they'll give they'll show little graphs where they'll say okay the mass is on one axis and the strength of, at which it interacts with things is on another axis. And then you say, okay, what regions have been ruled out by experiment? There hasn't really been a, a, a good solid detection yet, so we settle for what regions have been ruled out by experiment. And you'll see a curve that is that says, okay, well, we think the mass is going to be somewhere around here. Um, you wouldn't call it matter. You'd still call it dark matter as a thing. Um... But it would be massive, probably, <laughs> and it would, and hopefully, it interacts at least a little bit with regular matter. So there's there's no guarantee of that happening, but we really hope it does, because <laughs> then you can actually study its properties. You just need a really really big experiment to do it. So it's it, it wouldn't really be considered. So I guess I I, I hope that answer. It, it's yeah. it's not matter. It's it's dark matter. But we think it's a particle with properties like any other particle. So, you know, the, the quarks are particles. They have these physical properties. So they have this angular momentum. They have this charge. They have this strength of interacting with uh, weakly with things. Uh, and we think dark matter is just like that. It's a, it's a particle that has a mass that interacts with itself, maybe with some strength that interacts with regular matter with some strength. And hopefully, one day, we'll be able to measure that. Okay, so from that, can I assume that the Star Trek Voyager episode in which they almost hit a dark matter asteroid was probably not scientifically accurate? <laughs> yeah, there's there's many things wrong with that. The, the, mostly that we don't think dark matter can clump together. So the reason that if, if you look at a map of dark matter in, in, our, in a galaxy... Like for example, the Milky Way galaxy—it's—it's it's a halo. It's not a disk. It's—and it, it doesn't interact with itself or or with the the standard matter very much. So basically, uh, I don't know if you were a kid and you ever considered, oh, if I dug a tunnel all the way to through the Earth to the opposite side and I jumped in, what would happen? Well, okay, you know, in the cartoony world of, you'd think you'd sort of yo-yo back and forth until friction would would stop you. And a lot of dark matter can actually orbit the galaxy that way. So there's, I'm sure there's some that will orbit it 
sort of in a circular or an elliptical orbit, but it's not impossible for it to orbit by just yo-yoing back and forth through the center of the galaxy. I mean, not the exact center, because then you'd fall into the black hole at the center, but yo-yo right next to it type thing. So you can have really weird behavior of dark matter just because it doesn't interact with things very strongly. One last question. Um, is this something that's being produced within the galaxies, or do we believe this to be a remnant from the earlier stages of the universe which has been trapped within the gravitational wells of the galaxies? Both. So, just like all the protons that we see today, they are effectively left over from the creation of the universe. We expect almost all the dark matter in the universe to be left over from, you know, the earliest phases of the universe when it was ridiculously hot, hot enough for these things to pop in and out of existence quickly and then annihilate and all that stuff. And as the universe cooled, it just got sort of frozen out without abundance. So the number of protons and neutrons froze out, but also the number of the number of dark matter particles froze out. The thing is that's important to know about dark matter is if it can interact with matter, or if it can interact with itself, it can be created today. So there there's three ways people search for dark matter. One is they look for it bumping into particles in, in, in detectors on Earth. So you have a big tank of liquid and if dark matter passes through it and it hits the particle, it should leave a signal. Another way is we look for the signal of dark matter annihilating. So dark matter would probably be quite dense at the center of our galaxy. So if two pieces of dark matter hit each other and decay into standard model particles, so standard matter, we'd see it. Or we hope we'd see it. And the third way is CERN, where you smash two beams of protons into each other. And if you see something happen called a monojet, where sort of where you see sort of a bunch of particles fly out in one direction, but then nothing comes out the other direction. That's a very strong signal for dark matter, because the dark matter would be created, but then we wouldn't see it. It would just fly out of the detector. But in order to conserve momentum, there has to be a big chunk of standard bottle material coming out the other end. If that if that makes sense, it's sort of like if, uh, uh, as an analogy, if I'm driving my bicycle down the road and I ricochet off something, it doesn't matter if that thing's invisible. The fact that I've ricocheted off something means there's something there. Yes. So you can, you can theoretically create dark matter in a lab. Uh, it's, it's actually one of the ways we're hoping to study it, is if it's, uh, if it, if it's able to interact at all with the standard matter, then we should be able to create it in a lab, as long as the beams have a higher amount of energy than the rest mass of that dark matter. And there's there's one other thing I'd, I'd want to say about dark matter, which is something that it's sort of an open secret for physicists. So when physicists talk about dark matter, they always say, oh, you know, well, we think it's this particle, or we think it has this mass, or we think it... We have no evidence that dark matter is one particle. Like, for example, if you imagine that there was a dark universe that had aliens made up of dark matter, say it could clump together... And they were talking to each other, They would, and then they have, okay, there's this missing 5% of the mass of the galaxy that's going to be standard matter. They wouldn't guess that, okay, it's made up of quarks and gluons and top quarks and Z bosons and all this mess that's the standard model. But for the sake of our searches, we say, okay, we're just going to look for the simplest possible model of dark matter, which is a single particle. It's, it's one of those things that, yes... Theoretically, there's nothing keeping there from being many different types of species of dark matter. Just 
for the sake of simplicity and for the sake of our searches, we say there's one species. Until we're proven otherwise. Oh, I think now that you've covered my questions, I'm going to field a few that have come in from the listeners. The These first ones are the questions that have actually been left by my previous guests on the YouTube page. The first one is Jim the Evo, James Gurney, who was on talking about zombie movies and pathogens. His question is, what question in physics would you like to see resolved most within your lifetime? Okay, so if, if I'm allowed to guess, uh, to say anything, I think it'd be really cool to know what dark energy is. Um, that said, I'm not kidding myself. <laughs> it's... It, the. It's something that's a puzzle that we'll never, they'll probably won't figure out for a good long while. Um, I think I'd go for, you know, it's it's like that kid asking for something for Christmas. I'm going to ask for something realistic. I'd like to know what dark matter is. Like That's that's something that I think in my lifetime, not only will, I think we'll find it within my lifetime. So I'm going to be happy if if we get on top of that. Okay, the next question is from Miles. What mode of transportation is the most scientifically viable? TARDIS, Enterprise, Stargate, or Serenity? <laughs> okay. Um, as, as far as I know, Serenity is the only one that doesn't travel faster than the speed of light, so I have to say that one. I mean, the so I've heard of sort of popular science articles talking about, oh, so-and-so is researching warp speed, but... Honestly, I'll believe that when I see it. Um, it's things like wormholes. Well, you can make a mathematical model that sort of doesn't violate general rel relativity. So you can you can make a wormhole that that follows the rules of general relativity, but it's it's something we've never seen, and it's something that we have no idea how it would actually be able to form naturally or unnaturally. So wormholes are kind of well. Out. When you said it wouldn't like violate relativity, I'm pretty sure it would violate anything that you tried to shove through it, in terms of the radiations that are involved when they have modeled these. So I'm I'm not sure how, I'm not sure what the whether or not you'd actually need to have radiation with them. For example, you can you can basically say uh, you can you can basically say i start out with a space time that is this shape that has this sort of tunnel through it that i can then bend back on itself and i'm not sure if you even need radiation in something like that if you've just sort of set up space time to have this shape in your mathematical model and i'm pretty sure you can actually say okay got this thing set up fine it doesn't violate the laws of physics as we know them the problem is we don't see this weird type of geometry out in space. Like we don't sort of, we can't, we can't just say it's a great thing in theory, but there's no evidence that anything like this has ever actually formed or ever actually could form. So a, while wormholes are sort of something I think would be ridiculously cool, I don't think they, they actually exist. <laughs> Transport methods were the TARDIS and the Enterprise. Okay, well, the the Enterprise goes with the, the warping space I mentioned, and the TARDIS, well, I mean, again, time travel is one of those things that'd be awesome, but sadly, that one's harder than wormholes to get to work. It's, uh, as far as we've been able to tell, nothing can 
travel in time, or nothing can even violate something like the fact that the speed of light is finite, and we're kind of stuck. Well, uh, you, if you want to get to another star system, you're going to have to do it the hard way with sublight travel and thousands of years to get there. Yeah, I think in the future, what a lot of hard science fiction writers are coming up with are these colony ships, where if we ever do try to set out beyond this solar system, we would have to bring so much stuff with us, and basically no one who left would ever get to the destination. In fact, their children and their children's children's children would never actually see the destination. We would actually have to create an island world, which we then just shove off into space. Yeah, and there'd always be a risk, because if you, uh, so say you get there, and it turns out the planet you made it to, not habitable. XKCD did a, a, a what-if comic on sort of how how much energy it would take to actually travel to one of these planets within, like, the nearest planet within, like, a hundred years, and it's astronomical, because you've got to spend half the trip speeding up, and then you've got to spend the next half of the trip slowing down, and... Yeah, because it's, it's not, easy it's not to like do. in a car where you can just take your foot off the accelerator and friction and gravity will do the work for you, and you'll eventually just coast. I mean, once you're out in space and the friction is gone, it's gone. Yeah, and you you end up with the, the somewhat obnoxious problem of, well, we need the rocket fuel, but then we need the rocket fuel to move the rocket fuel, then we need the rocket fuel to, fuel to move that rocket fuel to move the rocket fuel, and so you end up with ridiculous amounts of fuel reserves you need. So, it's uh, that type of travel is an intimidating prospect. There's really no shortcuts. None that we've been able to see. I mean, maybe one day they'll figure out how to, they'll be able to store antimatter in large enough, produce and store antimatter in large enough quantities to use as a rocket fuel, but that's distant future. <laughs> okay, the next question came from Sally LePage. And she said in response to your video, Bold claim, how do you think the general public perceive physics, and what would you change about how it is taught and are communicated? Um, a lot of people seem to view physics as either boring or impossibly difficult. Because the in order to actually be able to do physics, and get any kind of mastery of the material, you really need to know the math, and a lot of people view the math as just impossible. It, it, you do need a lot of math to be able to do it. Like, for example, just uh, your first course in quantum mechanics. In order to do that, you need a firm grasp on calculus, differential equations, and linear algebra. So those are three classes you'd have to take to get to it. And I think a lot of people view that math as something they just can't do. And if I could change one piece of the public's understanding about it would be that view the math just like you would any other language. Like it's, it's, humans are good at learning grammar. And I think if humans viewed learning the math just as another language, it'd be a lot less intimidating for a lot of people. Also, I think a lot of people view view physicists as sort of the people on the Big Bang Theory, which, well, to be honest, is accurate to a certain extent, but there are, most of the physicists I know are, are completely well-adjusted individuals. They aren't excessively geeky, but 
I don't think that stereotype is going anywhere. <laughs> okay, the last question came in on the Science of Sarcasm website. Um, just after I ask it, I would like to take a moment to make a brief comment on it just prior to you giving your answer, if that's okay. Uh, okay. The question is from... A f hmm, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this correctly. A Fetterous Bull? And it is... Okay, this may make me sound like the village idiot, but here goes. If a planet is travelling towards a star at half the speed of light, would the light coming from that star pass the planet at a speed greater than the speed of light, relatively speaking? Now, the comment I wish to make prior to that was, if you think that that makes you sound like an idiot, well then you're in pretty good company, because that seems very similar to the kinds of questions that Albert Einstein was asking himself one day in Tuscany just prior to his starting his research into the fields which led to rel relativity. Yeah, okay, so it, it is sort of trippy to get your head around, but the basic premise of of special relativity is that the speed of light always looks like the speed of light. So if if I'm in a frame and I'm looking at the at photon well I can't look at photons leaving me because they're running away at the speed of light so I can't actually see them I would have to sort of bounce the photon off something to to send the information back um and that's that's where you get around these these seeming contradictions is that well okay if from the stars reference frame the uh, the light passing the planet is moving away from the planet at twice twice the speed of light if if the star were sort of doing the math uh, we're doing the observation observations there but the thing is uh, from the planet's reference frame they wouldn't be because anytime you want to get the information back you have to you have to send the information back so for example say uh say you had a lot a lot of solar panels that would light up when the pulse of light from the star hits them in order for you to see that those solar panels have lit up, have have been triggered, you'd have to have that information travel back. And from the planet's perspective, all those distances have been Lorentz contracted because they're moving, which means that the the lengths have been shortened. So that's how these things. It's it's kind of hard to to set up in sort of this thing of planets moving back and forth between each other, but. You can actually, you can always calculate using the equations from special relativity what speed they would observe, and it would always come out as a consistent speed at or below the speed of light. Um, the one main difference that would happen happen with this is, so if my planet is falling in towards the sun at half the speed of light, the light coming from the sun would be heavily blue shifted. So if you imagine light as a as a wave. Uh, just as an ocean wave. The fact that the Earth is sort of plowing straight into these ocean waves would make make it, from the planet's perspective, the peaks and troughs of the waves would feel, would look like they were closer together, which is what makes something, say, that's the color red, become blue-shifted. So it's it's one of those things where, you know, you, you can talk about these sort of thought experiments all you want, but if you want to really understand what's going on there, you need to use the math and say, okay, let's calculate what speed it observes the light traveling at and that says oh it's traveling at the speed of light and it's it's one of those things where you 
I guess to put it another way is that special relativity is one of the first areas of physics that you'll bump into as a physics student where you have to trust the equations over your own naive intuition. And eventually you get to know the, you get to understand the equations well enough that they actually become your physical intuition for these things. If that makes any sense at all. Yes. I think maybe in a few billion years someone can do this an experiment somewhat like this when Andromeda and the Milky Way start sifting through each well, other. And, and when Andromeda does collide with the Milky Way, it will be at a speed vastly below the speed of light. Like the, the speed at which Andromeda hits us will be fast by sort of our day-to-day -day measurements, but it will be nowhere near the speed of light. Like it, it, it I'm not sure how fast it would be, but it would be, I doubt it'd be a thousandth the speed of light. So it's its one of those funny things that, yes, it'll be hitting us extremely fast, but what people tend to forget is the speed of light is really, really fast. I think the speed of light also helps us understand how big space is. Like I just, was it Pluto is something like five light hours from the sun? Or eight light minutes from the sun? Yeah, that that's the number I know, and I know that I think the moon is about four light seconds away. So five light hours makes sense to me for Pluto. Like it, it sounds like it's in the right ballpark, but I when you like when you consider, and that's still well inside the solar system, and well inside the sun's gravity field. We haven't almost to the Oort cloud, but not quite, and there's still a whole lot of space to go through yet. I mean. Voyager has left the solar system about five times, I think, now. And they keep finding <laughs> more stuff outside the next layer. And it's like, oh, it turns out the sun's gravity's still out here. Well, I mean, the sun's gravity will be everywhere. <laughs> it's... I know, we always have to throw that caveat in. Like, it will always, it'll be approaching zero, but never quite. Uh, yeah, it's kind of remarkable how much stuff there is in the solar system. And at the same time, how little stuff. There's a lot of empty space there. Okay, so that was the last question from our guests, and now I have to put you through the obligatory quiz. Ugh, I'm going to come off like an idiot. <laughs> well, I've tried to match up each topic to the guests' field of knowledge. Um, James had to identify pathogen types. Sally had to connect pi female pioneers in STEM fields to their fields of research. Miles was entirely GMO related. Uh, your quiz, I am naming it's all Greek to me. And it's going to be identifying the Greek letter which denotes the terms I'm about to give you. Oh, God. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to give you ten terms from physics. And you are going to tell me which Greek letter is used to denote them in equations. Break you in gently. Number one, a change in variable. Uh, well, there's a if it's a if it's a small change, yeah, then there's a small delta. But if there's, yeah, okay, let's call it delta. It's. <laughs> well, I'll I'll give you that one. Delta is the small triangle placed before the variable in the equation. Angular displacement. Angular dispa displacement. Uh, I want to say omega. 
like little Omega. But... Unfortunately, it was theta. Oh, okay. Okay, angular acceleration. That one's alpha, I think. That's correct. Wavelength. Lambda. Correct. Cosmological constant. Capital lambda. Correct. Higgs field. The Higgs field. Uh, well, it's a scalar, so phi. That's correct. Mass density. Rho. Correct. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. You're one away from. You've already passed Sally's five out of ten, and you're one away from matching Miles's seven. Angular frequency. Omega. Okay, you've matched Miles. Wave function. Psi. That's correct. You can also use phi, I think, but usually psi. Now, this is the last one to get joint first place with James's 9 out of 10. I hope I pronounced this correctly. Laplace operator. Oh... Oh bollocks! I I want to say it's it's uh, capital delta, but it could also be nabla. I'll go with del uh, delta. Well, you have just gotten joint first place with James because it is delta. Ah, oh, sweet. So that is nine out of ten. You didn't do as badly as you originally thought you were going to. That was uh, interesting. I was trying to go back to all the formula sheets from undergrad. <laughs> Well, I think you can be fairly proud of that. I wear it as a badge of honor. <laughs> okay, so I think that's all we have time for. Now, if my listeners want to find out more about you and the work you're doing and the videos you make, where can they find out more? Well, uh, my YouTube channel is probably the go-to place, The Gentleman Physicist. Uh have all kinds of videos, some where I do some experiments, some where I talk about some theoretical results in physics. Um, and yeah, that's that's usually what I do. I'm going to try doing some where I actually visit some big experiments, like uh, got an upcoming video where we're looking at an adaptive optics setup, where a mirror actually changes shape to correct for problems in the atmosphere, which should be fun. But So, gentleman physicist, right here, right here on YouTube. Well, that's it for everything, and thanks again, John, for coming on. Thanks for having me on. And everyone, make sure to check the show notes for the links to John's accounts and for all of the stories that were mentioned in the show. That's it for now, and you've been listening to The Science of Sarcasm. <laughs>